Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we visit a cemetery in Bluefield, Virginia, and learn how racial segregation followed some people to the grave. It was hard for me as a child to understand how in the world is your mother buried over there and it's weeds. You're pointing to weeds. And most states have closed down their Greyhound racetracks. So what's the future of the sport in West Virginia? There's no doubt in my mind that Greyhound racing is going to end in West Virginia as it has ended elsewhere. I think the question is, how long is it going to take? How many millions in state funds are going to be wasted? And how many dogs are going to suffer in the meantime? We'll also revisit a conversation with America's last remaining World War II Medal of Honor recipient, Herschel Woody Williams. He died June 29th at the age of 98. So we broke the boxes open to see what, you know, there's supposed to be a supply of something. And here are flamethrowers that none of us had ever seen before. We didn't even know it existed. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Herschel Woody Williams died June 29th at the age of 98. A West Virginia native, he was the nation's last surviving World War II Medal of Honor recipient. Last year for Veterans Day, us and them host Trey Kay talked with Williams about his time in the military. Here's part of that conversation. The Civilian Conservation Corps took Williams to Montana, where he spent about a year building fences. But his time with the CCC came to an abrupt end on December 7th, 1941. Uh, So that's where I was when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And um, they announced that America was going to war. And that those that were over 18 years of age, you could enlist and go straight into the Army from there. But if you're under 18, then you had to have a parent consent. And I, did, I was only 17. Okay. So they put me on a train and sent me back to West Virginia. But I wanted to become a, uh, a Marine. Why, why a Marine? Well, I had two brothers who were drafted in early 1942. And they had to wear their Army uniform, that old brown woolen Army uniform, and I thought that's the ugly thing, but... Uh, you, you thought the Army uniform was ugly? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, the Marine Corps dress blues were so much more neat. <laughs> and we had a couple guys in the community that had gone into the Marine Corps at different times. They weren't even related. But in those days, you got home one time a year, and you had to wear a uniform. The Marine Corps required you to wear a uniform all the time you were home. And they would do that, and of course, people would just, particularly girls, like those dress blue uniforms. And I thought, well, that's the way to go. That was a benefit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A month after his 18th birthday, Woody Williams went to a recruiter's office and told them that he wanted to be a Marine. But there was one question on the paperwork he got from the recruiter that tripped him up. One of the questions was religion. And he had said a number of times as we were filling out these forms, everything on this form must be complete or it will not be accepted. Yeah. And I didn't know what to put in that block of religion. I didn't have any. I'd never been to church in my life. We didn't have a church in the community. 
my mother had a Bible, and that's where we kept all of our records. That's, she kept records of marriages, deaths, and births. So what'd you put down? Well, well, I, I didn't know what to put in there, and I was going to ask the recruiter what I should put in there. And I'm standing behind a little Italian boy that's a little shorter than me, and he's got his paper ready to give to the recruiter, and I just look over his shoulder, and I see the letter C in there, and I became a Catholic right then. <laughs> when I got to boot camp out in San Diego, I had to go to Mass on Sunday morning. <laughs> Couldn't understand a word they said. They were talking in Latin. I didn't know what it was, but that's what they were speaking in. <laughs> My dog tag shows I was a Catholic. And had I been killed, I would have gotten the last rites, whether I won them or not. Because yeah, I was listed as a Catholic. After basic training, William shipped out to Guam, a, a small island in the Philippine Sea. His basic training focused on all-purpose infantry skills. But one day, a bunch of weird-looking boxes showed up in Guam for his division. We got a whole bunch of them, so we broke the boxes open to see what, you know, there's supposed to be a supply of something. And here are flamethrowers that none of us had ever seen before. We didn't even know it existed. Williams and his fellow Marines thumbed through the instruction manual for the flamethrowers. What they saw was disturbing. They had to strap flammable liquid onto their backs and go into combat. We were concerned that it might explode on your back. It's got gasoline in That's there. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So we set it out in the field all by itself, and then we got away from it and shot at it with M1 rifles and machine guns to see if we could explode that thing. If it's going to explode out there, it could explode back here on your back, you know. We could never penetrate the metal. It was too thick, heavy, real heavy steel. That's what made it weigh so much. Williams experienced combat in Guam, but it was when his battalion set out for Iwo Jima that he remembers being terrified. In 36 days, the Marines had lost 7,000 men. And we lost almost 5,000 people the first day. Yeah, so... <clears throat> After that first day, and having lost so many Marines, that we were told that night of the first day, we are going ashore tomorrow. So they got us up, we ate chow at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then got off the ships at 5, into Higgins boats, and went out in a rendezvous area where the Higgins boats were circling, waiting for the ship, the uh, shore master to say, come on in, we got room. Well, take me to that moment. What was that like? You're in the Higgins boat, and you're basically coming up to the beach at Iwo Jima. What was that? What's that memory like? Very, very scary. When the ramp drops, we were told, when the ramp drops, that's what we call the ramp, everybody goes, you know, quickly. Because as soon as you hit, you spread out so that you won't be a target, you know. You don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know whether you're going to run into a machine gun or rifleman or whatever. I can remember when we got to the beach, it was so chaotic. The uh, 4th Marine Division, which was in the sector where we were, they'd been pinned there for all day and all night. And the next day, they finally broke through the Japanese line and began to move forward and toward Mount Suribachi. That was their objective, was to take Mount Suribachi. And 
that gave us room to come in. And uh, that uh, was actually the second day of the campaign. Uh, there was just bodies everywhere. There were packs and, and uh, tanks blown up and trucks blown up and jeeps blown over. And I mean, it was mayhem. chaotic, mayhem. But seeing all that, but the, the thing that stuck with my mind and has always been there and it, it'll never go away, with all the Marines that have been killed, in addition to Navy corpsmen, they had no place to bury them. They couldn't send them back to ships, had no way of transporting them back to the ships. So they rolled them in their ponchos. Everybody had to carry a poncho and just stack them up like cordwood. And there were great numbers of them. And I remember seeing that, and they were stacked right along the edge of the, uh, the beach, just, just above the water level where it came in. Uh, and eventually, uh, in order to do something with them, they dug a huge trench and uh, stretched a rope across the front of it, or on one side of it, and they put the one person's dog tag on the rope and the other dog tag on the person. We had two dog tags. They put the dog tag on the rope and then one with the person so they would know that's the individual in this location. And then they just placed them body by side, side by side, in a big deep trench and then covered them over with a bulldozer. That was their burial site until we got cemeteries built. Once we got the cemeteries built, then they exhumed and placed him in the cemetery. Memorial services were held for Williams over the July 4th weekend, with public visitation held at the Capitol Rotunda in Charleston. You can hear the entire Us and Them podcast episode. It's called Last Man Honored. Find it at wvpublic.org or your favorite podcast app. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Claude Worthington Benedum Foundation. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade sent shockwaves across the country, including here in Appalachia. WEKU reporter Stan Ingold brings us reactions from Kentucky. So as of this morning, except where the health of the mother is at risk, abortion is no longer lawful in the Commonwealth. Those are the words of Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron. He celebrated the court's decision on Friday that overturned Roe v. Wade. Cameron said while they have the initial victory, there is still more work to be done. We must continue to advance and advocate for legislation that stands up for the babies who cannot stand up for themselves. We must commit to defending and implementing those laws. I, for one, will do my part in this role as Attorney General. He was not alone in celebrating the decision. Kentucky Right to Life Executive Director Adia Wushner says she was at a national Right to Life meeting when the doors were abruptly flung open and an announcement was made about the court ruling. There was a moment of just a second of stunned silence, and then it was a rejoicing and tears, and, and the shout was, Rose overturned. That was not the sentiment everywhere in Kentucky. The same evening, crowds gathered in front of the Lexington Courthouse to rally in support of abortion rights. 
The gathering was hosted by Planned Parenthood Advocates Alliance. Elected officials, candidates, and a rabbi gathered to speak. David Kloiber, a Lexington mayoral candidate, says if elected in November, he would advise the police and judiciary. Not to go after and prosecute these kind of crimes when there's so much violence in the city, when there's so many other things that are out there that can protect our citizens more. We don't need to be going after people who are victims in all of this. Angela Evans is the presumptive Fayette County attorney-elect. She says emotions are high right now. A lot of people are hurting, a lot of people are frustrated and mad, and it was important to, to be here to show my support and to express my own frustration. Weather kept the crowd small in Richmond on Saturday as they gathered outside the courthouse in Madison County. Hannah Bingham is a high school teacher in Madison County. Bingham has lived in central Kentucky for eight years, but is originally from Chicago. Illinois is the only border state where abortion protections are still in place. Bingham says that she's grateful she has connections there and could make the trip north if she needed to. She says not having that must be very scary. It is not an easy trip um, as far as like financially, we're talking about gas prices, like somebody who uh, suddenly needs to have this procedure, um, it's, it's not really an easy thing to throw together and find somewhere to stay and know where you're going and know who you're going to and all of that kind of thing. Michelle Gore was also at the rally and says that she was in a high school when Roe v. Wade passed. She says that she attended the gathering for the younger generations. And, and I have two daughters and two granddaughters, and they're never going to, they're not going to know what I have known, you know, during all of my reproductive years. And so I'm here for them, um, and just that it's not right, and we have to say something, you know, have to do something. Gore says she hopes the Richmond community will see that there are people in central Kentucky willing to fight for women's rights. Weather was also a factor on Sunday in Pikeville. A reproductive rights rally was scheduled to take place in the courthouse square and was pushed indoors due to threats of severe storms. Over 200 people crowded a room in the Pikeville courthouse. The tight quarters and lack of air conditioning did not keep speakers and attendees from hearing each other out for over an hour. Janie Beverly lives in Floyd County. She said now is not the time for silence. I cannot sit by and be silent. I cannot sit by and do nothing. I have a conviction in my soul that says we have got to stand up. We've got to do what is right. And where this is headed is not right. You are Few people were silent in that courtroom gathering. One speaker broke out in song before one of the most anticipated speakers got up to the podium. I love you. I need you to know that because I know how hard it is to be here right now. You should not have to be here right now. That's Democratic Senate candidate Charles Booker, who addressed the Pikeville crowd. He sympathized with those in attendance. You should not have to be arguing and fighting for your humanity. You should not have to declare that your life, your agency, your humanity, your identity matters. You shouldn't have to do that. After the event, Booker said that Eastern Kentucky was already hurting for access to health care. We've been struggling just as a commonwealth, but especially in Appalachia, to get quality health care for a long time. And now this rollback of even more rights and protections is really going to be a devastating blow to a lot of families who are needing help, who are needing investment, needing resources, and needing care. Demonstrators this weekend talked about Kentuckians' will to fight. That fight is already underway. The American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky has filed a state court challenge trying to block the abortion ban in the Commonwealth.
For WEKU, I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond. Shell is expected to begin operations this summer at its ethane cracker plant on the Ohio River. The plant will use natural gas to make tiny plastic pellets, which can wind up in waterways. For State Impact Pennsylvania, the Allegheny Front's Julie Grant took a boat ride with people surveying the river for plastic. Captain Evan Clark says he's pulled out more than a million pounds of trash from Pittsburgh's rivers over the past 15 years and millions more pounds along the shorelines. And he's amazed at how much of it is plastic. He started this January as the Three Rivers Waterkeeper and leads cleanup groups. For our volunteers, the eye-opening experience of seeing that such a massive percent of what we pull out of the river is plastics is um, really eye-opening and educational. They find things like the plastic film that covers cigarette packs, fleece clothing, grocery store bags, and soda bottles. Morning, morning. How are you? Hi there. Clark pulls the boat to the side of the Ohio River at the boat launch in Manaka, a few miles upriver from Shell's ethane cracker. He's bundled up in waders and a hoodie pulled over his head to protect him from the wind. Eric Harder, the Yakagani River keeper, is among a few others waiting to get on board. They're headed out to trawl for a different kind of plastic, nurdles. I'd say most people do not know what a nurdle was when I first, you know, would tell them about it. Nurdles are tiny pieces of plastic the size of a lentil. They're the raw material used by manufacturers to make other plastic products. It takes more than 350 nurdles for one yogurt cup and over a thousand nurdles to make a soda bottle. The boat passes Shell's huge new industrial facility high on the bank. When it opens, it will make 1.6 million metric tons of plastic pellets a year. Most people, I tell them that the cracker plant looks like an engineering masterpiece. It does look amazing, like someone took a long time to design it all, but it does, you know, make plastic. (laughs) Their issue today is that those plastic pellets sometimes spill. This has happened in places like Texas and Louisiana, where nurdles wind up in waterways and on shorelines. Heather Hilton Van Tassel is executive director of Three Rivers Waterkeeper. She worries this will happen here when Shell loads trains and trucks with these tiny plastic bits. So with the the nurdles, it's really important to understand how much of the product might be slipping into our river systems. Fish and birds can ingest these microplastics, and there's concern that other pollutants bind to them in the water. The environmental groups are collecting nurdles now to build a baseline of plastics in the river so they can tell if there are any spills from the cracker plant after it opens. They stop the boat, and using a metal pole, Eric Harder lowers a large sock-like filter onto the surface of the water. Timer ready? Yep. Go ahead. And then we just sit and wait for 10 minutes. The sock floats along the surface, catching debris. How are we doing? Three minutes. Three, Three minutes. minutes. Okay. Once those last few minutes pass, they get to work. They pull the filter sock out of the water and empty the contents through a filter into a bucket. And they kind of visually inspect everything. They find a couple of squishy white balls, styrofoam, not nurdles. Then they pour the debris through a smaller sieve. 
now we're taking all the smaller particles with the water that went through and putting it into a smaller sieve. James Cato of Mountain Watershed Association looks through. Nothing here. This looks like maybe another little piece of styrofoam, though. They go through this protocol at five different spots, spanning the width of the river. And they do this at set locations up and down river of the shell plant. After one filtering, Cato points out a piece of harder, more dense plastic. This is a nurdle. And this one is a gray, yellowish color. He keeps looking through the debris. And that also looked to me like a nurdle. And it still has that kind of glowing quality. Um, And then the other ones are yellowed, and uh, they've been eroded down uh, into more irregular shapes. So who knows how long they've been out here. Cato smiles as he opens a box of new amber-colored vials. A lab at University of Pittsburgh recently provided them. The amber vials help preserve the, the chemical contents that are absorbed by the microplastics. He opens a vial and drops in one of the nurdles they found. They'll send it to researchers at local universities to analyze and see if other pollutants in the water are concentrating on the surface of the nurdles. This new partnership is funded by the Heinz Endowments, which also provides funding for the Allegheny Front. Eric Harder says now, with the researchers' help, they have developed a more scientifically valid protocol. When it was just one person been like, oh, let's look here for some nurdles, and oh, I found some, it must be from them. It's a lot different from now when we have university scientists. Those scientists will also be searching for nurdles on the river banks, looking for them in fish guts and monitoring water quality. In an email, Shell spokesperson said the pellets produced at the plant, quote, cannot be allowed to make their way into local waterways under any circumstances, and that the company built multiple barriers to capture any plastics that may spill at the plant. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection said in an email that the plastic pellets are regulated under the state's Clean Streams Law and under the Solid Waste Management Act, and that the shell plant will be subject to regular inspections. Still, Captain Evan Clark says the more nurdle patrols they do and the more people hear about it, the better. Not only just to Shell, but to everybody else who's interested in this, in, in the plastic issue, seeing that people are taking it seriously enough to spend the time and the money to be out here doing the work does, uh, does a ton uh, to just raise the visibility. And the more eyes on Shell, he says, the more likely it will be careful not to pollute the river. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant. According to the U.S. Census, More than a million and a half people in the U.S. live without running water or flush toilets. But a recent study found the number was a lot higher. Jessica Lilly recently spoke with George McGraw, CEO of Dig Deep, a water advocacy organization that took a closer look at the numbers. That seems like a really staggering number, but in the report it said that this is a conservative estimate. What's the challenge in gathering this type of information? Why is this a conservative estimate? This study only focused on the 1.57 million people in the U.S. who the census identified as living in households without running water or flush toilets. So it doesn't include people experiencing homelessness. It doesn't include people who don't use water because they can't afford it or have had their water shut off. We also know that that estimate is low because census has a hard time penetrating rural areas where most of these people live, like rural West Virginia. But there were many other things we couldn't quantify because the data just wasn't there. We couldn't quantify, for instance, 
the healthcare burden for people who drink dirty water um, because they don't have access to clean water and you know are facing things like arsenic or lead poisoning. We couldn't quantify the cultural impacts that this has on local communities or the impacts of tourism or the water industry. So, you know, if your community doesn't have running water or sanitation, it's less likely to be a hub of economic development and tourism. And those lost dollars are really hard to quantify. Here in West Virginia, we do have very high rates of diabetes, if not the highest rate of diabetes in the country. Could this help to explain some of the challenges and health issues that we have here in West Virginia? I mean, diabetes is absolutely connected to infrastructure. Um, you know, that really shows that if your family doesn't have running water, you're just more likely to consume sugar-sweetened beverages, you're more likely to get diabetes, and you're more likely to get complications in diabetes. Because not only do you have diabetes, but you can't keep yourself healthy and clean at home. So I think that link is absolutely there um, and it's starting to bear out in the data. And, you know, there are so many reasons that we need to, to close this water gap and solve this problem. And, and that's a really powerful one. It also seems like there's that West Virginia is an exception to some of this information. Can you explain how West Virginia is an exception to a lot of the general findings in this report? There was a lot of investment in water and sanitation infrastructure in West Virginia originally. In many of the places around the country that don't have taps and toilets today, that investment never happened, but it did happen here. Um, since then, though, those systems have been allowed to degrade and to fall offline because of a lack of reinvestment and a lack of operations and maintenance. You know, in some cases, West Virginia is kind of the new kid on the block. You know, some of these communities in the U.S. without running water haven't had it ever in U.S. history. Can you talk about how what the report says that how we can address this in America? I think the real key to solving this problem, and it's not going to be a surprise to anybody, is increased federal investment. Federal investment since the 1970s has fallen off a cliff. It's just 4% of what it used to be in water and sanitation, which leaves these communities kind of to fend for themselves. And we just made a historic investment in our infrastructure through the bipartisan infrastructure law but that, that law was never designed to close the water gap. Most of that money is going to go to things like lead line replacement or making systems more climate change resilient or bringing them up to standards today. So a lot of the families that we serve at Dig Deep still won't benefit from, from those funds. Um, the reason the federal government needs to make this investment and to you know, make good on their promise to these families that they get the same access to basic services that every other American enjoys and often takes for granted the reason the federal government has to lead that investment is because we found in our study that this problem um, has what's called a wrong pockets dimension to it, meaning that we could create a tremendous amount of economic value by closing the water and sanitation gap, uh, something like $200 billion over the next 50 years. But not one single investor recoups all of that. You know, Some will benefit families directly, some will benefit their communities, some will benefit the national economy. And when multiple people benefit from an investment, sometimes there's not one party who's incentivized enough to invest all that money. And in those circumstances, the federal government has to lead, just like they did in the 30s and the 50s and the 70s when we built this infrastructure for the first time. They have to come in and make this commitment. And that, that is going to mean increased federal funding. But as this report shows, it's well worth every dollar. What's your take? How do you think the American people will react to this idea of not only using the money that was in the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, but also spending even more money on infrastructure and water to help close this gap when we're already dealing with the inflation 
challenges? I actually think the inflation and potential recession challenges we're, we're dealing with are a reason why we should do this. This economic impact study didn't just show how much money the economy is losing every year. It also showed how much money we stand to gain by investing in this. You know, this study proves that for every dollar we invest, we get $5 back. And in a time of recession, these are the kind of investments we're looking for. You know, these investments that not only make people's lives markedly better and save lives, an estimated 600 lives a year are lost because of the water gap, but that actually generate an economic return, that generate wealth, that create prosperity in some of the most marginalized, economically marginalized parts of the country, getting their sort of engines revved and creating more value over time. When, you're, when you sort of have the looming specter of a recession, federal investment's important to get people working and you know, to sort of juice the engine um, of the economy. And there's really few better investments you can make than this one. George McGraw, CEO of Dig Deep, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Later in the show, we'll hear about a small-town Virginia cemetery where a fence placed by the town divides white and black residents, even in death. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. By the end of the year, West Virginia will be the only state that still has a Greyhound racetrack. One of the biggest questions driving the national push to end greyhound racing is can the sport be run in a humane way, or is it inhumane by its very definition? Reporter Chris Schultz takes us to a veterinarian's office and a breeder's farm. Just off the first turn of the dog track at the Wheeling Island Casino stands a cement block building, the racetrack's paddock. Inside, greyhounds are prepared for the day's races. Dogs are weighed, fitted with racing bibs, and checked by the state veterinarian on site. Before and after their race, the dogs are held in crates, one stacked on top of the other. Long spans of crating is just one of many issues opponents of dog racing point to as abusive treatment. Carrie Teal is the president of Grey2K USA, a nonprofit dedicated to ending greyhound racing in the U.S. Teal says that in the racing system, dogs are disposable. Just last year, 627 greyhound injuries were reported to the State Racing Commission in West Virginia, including 189 dogs that suffered broken bones and 10 dogs that died. In an industry that calls its dogs athletes, Teal says the death rate is unacceptable. If 10 high school football athletes died in West Virginia last year, I think that would be the number one story being discussed. Teal has advocated for laws banning greyhound racing in states like Florida and Massachusetts. For him and similar-minded activists, there is no point in prolonging a doomed industry. There's no doubt in my mind that greyhound racing is going to end in West Virginia as it has ended elsewhere. I think the question is, how long is it going to take? How many millions in state funds are going to be wasted? And how many dogs are going to suffer in the meantime? 
Dr. Lori Bahenko, the state veterinarian at Wheeling Island, takes issue with that position. It's my data. I've been here 18, 19 years, and they just twist it to their benefit. In her role as the racetrack state veterinarian, Bohenko reports every injury. Whether it's a toenail that was torn off or a broken leg. Um, are there catastrophic things that happen? Absolutely. But they're minimal. They're not as, uh, as frequent as, as they like to uh, portray. Bohenko concedes that in the past, the racing industry did treat dogs as disposable but insists that attitudes have changed. She points towards the Four Legs for Hounds program she founded with funds from Greyhound Breeders. It sends dogs with broken legs to the veterinary hospital at Ohio State University in Columbus. In the past, these dogs would have been euthanized, but Bohenko estimates that since its creation, the Four Legs program has reduced the number of euthanasias by 80 or 90 percent. There might be anywhere from three to six dogs a year, a, a year that might be euthanized here. You know, I'm sure veterinary practices, small animal practices, euthanize a lot more dogs than this racetrack does in a year. For people involved in and employed by the greyhound racing industry in West Virginia, accusations of cruelty are puzzling. For these dogs to have an opportunity to get on a racetrack and do what they instinctively do, I, I just think is a joy for them. You, you see these dogs and they love going out and running. I think because it is a regulated sport, the surface is kept as safe as, as you can. Hello, what are you doing in there? Are you being shy, huh? You're just sleeping. These guys are a little bit older. These are... Steve Saris is the president of the West Virginia Kennel Owners Association. He is a second-generation greyhound breeder and currently has about 75 dogs on his farm in Wellsburg, north of Wheeling. These dogs are brought up. They expect you to dote on them. They expect that love and affection. So they come running up to you with their tails wagging, which is, you know, if you stop and think, if a dog was abused, they're not going to do that. They're going to cower away. When visitors first arrive on the Saris property, they look down onto the dog's living quarters, some two dozen concrete block shelters attached to fenced-in runs. The blocks are Spartan, but the runs are maintained, and dogs can run whenever they like. Saris says his dogs are well taken care of because otherwise, they don't win races. You're giving them the best food, the best vitamins, best vaccination protocols, the best worming protocols, because you really, in order for you to be competitive and in order for you to win and in order for you to get reimbursed, you have to do all of that stuff. Saris believes that activists, while well-intentioned, are ultimately misinformed about what actually goes on at the track and on farms like his. He encourages concerned citizens to go to a racetrack or a breeder's farm, see things for themselves, and make up their own mind Seeing the industry up close seems to have been enough for West Virginia's lawmakers. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Wheeling. Herbal remedies have been experiencing a nationwide renaissance for several years now. But here in Appalachia, those remedies have been a path to wellness and independence for centuries. From Tennessee, Folkways reporter Heather Duncan has more. Crystal Wilson's small garden beds and animal pens sprawl off both sides of a dirt drive on the side of a ridge in Rockford, south of Knoxville. She's been gardening and tending the herbs in her forest floor here for a quarter century. Wilson grew up in southwest Virginia, learning about wild plants on long walks with her father, who was a factory worker. Her grandparents made extra money gathering plants to sell at an herb house in Marion. It dried the herbs and sold the components to pharmacies. Appalachia used to be the pharmacy of the United States. You know, we would harvest the plants here, and they go to compounding pharmacies, 
and that would make medicine. So folks could gather things and take them there and sell them to make extra money. So that's always been part of who we are here. We just forgot it. Wilson didn't forget. She learned even more about remedies from Appalachian women she taught to read as a literacy coach, her first job after graduating from college. Until the COVID-19 pandemic, Wilson sold home remedies from her farm or a farmer's market, mostly to women. Historically, women turned to herbs for health concerns like menopause and family planning. Today, they also want cures for other problems of our time, sleeplessness, anxiety, and depression. Wilson says elderberry syrup is often the gateway to trying other remedies. Here on Wilson's land, it's literally by the gate. Well, do you know what that is down there at the road? No. That's your first quiz. Come on, that one down there with the white blooms on it. Oh, yes. What is that's it? That's your elderberry, right? Well, that's, well, that's a little bit of many. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's where we're going to start all down right, here. What are we hearing? That's guineas. A flock of flustered guinea fowl follows Wilson as she winds among goat pens. The berries are a few months off, so today she's going to show me how to make a fever tincture by steeping elderberry flowers and honeysuckle in vodka. First, we have to find open blossoms like small lace doilies. After a hunt, she snaps some off and takes them to a metal bowl of water. We have a clean jar. I try to look for bugs. We're going to wash it off. She gestures to the huge containers built onto wooden platforms at each corner of the house. This is rainwater from that barrel. Wilson values not only tradition, but also what science teaches about conservation, climate change, and healing. As a diabetic, she depends on modern medicine and emphasizes that herbal remedies are not a replacement for it. She's even taught nurses how to avoid interactions between home remedies and prescriptions. For a tincture, you know, it's a plant and alcohol base. I usually use potato vodka because a lot of folk got weed allergies. So now we're going to take our potato vodka and cover this up. When someone buys a tincture, Wilson personalizes the dosing based on their age, weight, and medical history. She's aware of modern challenges. We've got a lot of opioid addictions, so, you know, you don't want to give somebody struggling with that an alcohol. So I, I'll use glycerin or I'll use even apple cider vinegar for someone like that. I will put this in a windowsill and I will shake it or walk by it every day. And then about six to eight weeks, I'll strain it and put it in an amber-colored little dropper bottles. So everything is slow about this, from the plants to the medicine. Nothing's fast. There's wisdom in that. Demand for that wisdom has come full circle. Wilson says suburban enthusiasm for traditional remedies is actually driving more Appalachians back to them. It's so wonderful to see people, I know that, to have that light bulb come on again. Jill Richards reflects the newer trend of college-educated suburban women making herbal remedies. She's a mother of six living on the outskirts of Knoxville. I think definitely through the years there's been more of an uptick in just regular suburban moms wanting to do things naturally. Richards turned to making home remedies 25 years ago when her first baby was born, learning recipes from books, her chiropractor, and other moms. They'd make a social event of concocting salve and diaper rash cream while their toddlers played. As her kids aged, Richards came to rely on other remedies. I have fire cider, and I drink it every day during the winter, and I think it gets rid of anything. On her counter is a big glass container with a spigot. It holds a light amber liquid, thick with white fragments and flower-shaped pepper slices. So you take horseradish root, onions and garlic, habanero peppers, some herbs and spices and things like that, and then put them down in apple cider vinegar and let it ferment for like four weeks. And then you just drink it. So this is it. I keep my little shot glasses over here. And you just pour it and drink. Yeah. And it is very hot. But I am telling you, I don't think anything bad could live near you if you drink that. 
Richard sells elderberry syrup, which has gained mainstream popularity for warding off flu and colds. Some medical research seems to show it can strengthen immune response and shorten illness. She puts the word out to friends on Facebook when she cooks a batch from dried berries ordered online. Richard says herbal remedies are part of a holistic approach to health. It's interesting to me that we call them alternative because this was what people used to heal for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, this was the original medicine, plants and berries and oils and extracts. Modern women like Richard's can now learn the skills in formal classes. Ladies from a local Red Hat Society are perched on stools around a bar in a greenhouse, clinking ceramic teacups. They've just had a workshop on herbal tea at Aaron's Meadow Herb Farm in the rolling fields of Clinton. The class was taught by farm owner Kathy Burke Mahalzo, whose customers are mostly from Knoxville. She says interest in herbal remedies reflects the broader trend of wanting to know where our food and medicine come from. That went into overdrive during the coronavirus pandemic. Classes stopped, but some online buyers were hoarding immune boosters like dried elderberry and echinacea. Mahalzo quit selling more than a bag at a time. But she says the pandemic brought more people to value gardening and self-sufficiency. I think it did make people think, especially when, you know, stores were closed and restaurants were closed. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, if I did have, let's say, an injury or an illness, what would I do if I couldn't get to the store for these store-bought medications? I want to know what I could grow and use right out of my backyard if I had a stomach ache, my child couldn't sleep, we have a small burn. I think people realized that they were dependent on store-bought things, and maybe they didn't have to be. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Duncan. That story originally aired last summer as part of our Folkways reporting project. The project documents arts and culture across the region. You can hear all of our Folkways stories at wvpublic.org. America has a history of segregating black and white people in restaurants, schools, buses, even in death. Our final story brings us to a small Virginia town where that was exactly the case. For decades, graves of the black residents who helped build the community were neglected in the town's segregated cemetery. And it might have stayed that way if it hadn't been for the efforts of one persistent woman whose family's buried there. Folkways reporter Connie Bailey Kitts brings us this story. I grew up in Bluefield, Virginia, across the street from the town cemetery. My dad and I would go for walks there. He'd see a grave marker and tell me stories about the little girl who tried to save her siblings from a fire, or his school friend shot down in World War II. But there was a whole segment of our community that he couldn't tell me about, because their graves were overgrown and hidden in the woods until recently. Susie, who did you see right there? Who? Oh, yeah, Trig. I knew some of the Trigs, yes. That's 96-year-old Thedia Harris talking to her daughter, Susie Green. They're searching for names that Thedia might recognize as we walk across the slope of Maple Hill Cemetery. We got the grass cut. Yeah, that looks good. Mm-hmm. Got a chair up there to sit in. The grass hasn't always been cut, and there hasn't always been a place to sit down. Not back in the 1950s when Susie was a child. My mother would bring us out here to see her mother's grave. But we couldn't see it, the marker, because it was nothing but brush. And it was hard for me as a child to understand how in the world is your mother buried over there and it's weeds. Uh, You're pointing to weeds. 
This was the town's African-American cemetery. It was established in the 1890s. There was a larger cemetery for white residents as well. The two lie next to each other with a strip of pavement keeping them separate. Over the years, black families were increasingly unable to bury relatives in this section of the cemetery as it became completely overgrown with thick brush and trees. And you know it's not going to be equal if it's separate because if it's equal, then why is it necessary to be separate? Joseph Bundy is an African-American community historian. I spoke to him by phone. He was a longtime resident of the Bluefield area, and he remembers life under Jim Crow when segregation was cradle to grave. When you were like born in segregation, you couldn't be born in the white hospital. You weren't accepted at, at your birth and you're not going to be accepted at your death. The most sacred part of your existence being your birth and your death. It wasn't until the 1950s and 60s that cemeteries in the South stopped segregating by race. Ruth Jackson is 91 and grew up next to Maple Hill Cemetery. She remembers watching the African-American funeral processions in the late 1930s. They would come down and put the bury in the black cemetery. They had their coffin in a wagon. I'm just a little tiny girl, five or six or seven. And uh, they would be singing. They sang all the way up the street, turning into the cemetery. Oh, I'm so glad Trouble don't last always That's Joseph Bundy singing Hush, Hush, a funeral song he learned from his father. The last funeral in the black section of Maple Hill Cemetery was in 1964. When I was a teenager in the 1970s, I used to cut through those woods not realizing this is a burial place for nearly 300 people, pastors, midwives, stonemasons, and veterans. And what I also didn't know was that the town owned both sections of the cemetery, though it only maintained the section reserved for whites. It might have stayed that way, too. But in the early 2000s, a volunteer working with the Historical Society made a discovery, and she realized something that others seemed to have forgotten. June Brown was looking through Old Town records when she found cemetery receipts for payments with the words colored section written on them. The town had owned the black graveyard and it had sold burial plots to black residents. I just thought, why are those graves not being taken care of? These plots were paid for. A search of courthouse records later documented the town's original 1896 purchase of the land for the black cemetery. But if it's a public cemetery, then you you don't have a right not to take care of it. And that's what I found in those papers. June says she thought about going to the town council to press them to do something about the neglected graves, but she felt uncomfortable. Bluefield is a small town, mostly white, and she didn't want to make waves. Looking back, I should have gone to the town council. I should have made a bigger stir about it. But I didn't do that. I regret that now. But June did tell a former town manager, Art Mead, about the receipts. He had been manager when the town had put up a chain-link fence between the white and black sections in the late 1980s. Art began petitioning town officials to acknowledge ownership and remove the fence to take care of the abandoned cemetery. But he says some officials didn't want to hear about it. The question I asked more than once is like, okay, we have white people on one side of this fence. 
and black people on the other side. The land was owned by the town in both settings. Fees were collected by the town, but yet we're treating the two sides differently. How does that not equate to racial discrimination? It took about a year, but the town council finally voted to remove the fence and began clearing some of the brush. And that brings us back to Susie Green. In October 2007, about a year after the fence came down, Susie took a drive over to the Black Cemetery with her Auntie Quilla, and she learned something she wasn't expecting. Her family had property rights in the cemetery. When we drove up, she said, uh, now, Dad has a plot over here. And uh, I said, a plot? And she said, yeah, I have the original <clears throat> deed to the plot. I said, what? She said, yeah, I have the original because my mother gave it to me and told me to keep it. And when Susie got a look at the deed, she saw that it was dated 100 years, almost to the day they had been standing there. Susie saw that as providence, and it inspired her to take action. She contacted a local reporter, and the paper ran a front-page story with a photo of her aunt holding the notarized deed. She asked the town to clear more brush so her family and others could have access to their ancestors' graves, and she asked for a walkway and a plaque that would tell the story of the people buried there. It's not about looking back and pointing a finger. With me, it never has been. It's about going forward and healing the, uh, the racism that caused this condition, just getting through it. And the best way I thought to get through it is to remember it as a point in history. It would take Susie the next 15 years working with four different town managers to reach her goals. In 2012, the town council would vote to restore all of the African-American cemetery. But even then, Susie says it didn't go smoothly. At one point, the town brought in excavators and bulldozers to clear the site, displacing grave markers. When we came out here and saw those huge yellow earth movers, and I thought, that's, that's not the way you do it. When spring came, the town planted grass and began regular maintenance paid for by the town's perpetual care fund. Good morning, Tazzleite. We are celebrating a federal holiday. In the summer of 2021, Virginia made Juneteenth a state holiday, and Susie took her family to the celebration in Tazewell, the county seat. Susie made an announcement there. We have been able to apply to the Virginia Historical Resources to obtain a highway marker that will have the history of Maple Hill Cemetery. Five months later, on a cold and windy Thanksgiving weekend, a group gathered in the cemetery to witness the unveiling of that historical highway marker. Charlie Stacy, the county supervisor who represents the Bluefield area, was there. The first thing that comes to my mind, I think, is an apology. That we should not have had to have an event like this. The folks buried behind me are as much of making Bluefield, Virginia what it is are the folks buried in front of me. Mm-hmm. And yet I never knew this section even existed. We stood on a crest overlooking both sections, black and white, about 8,000 gravestones total. Susie told the crowd that naming the names is about more than restoring graves. 
When we visit the graveyard, we are visiting the remnants of an African-American cultural system, a value system. We are touching base with the principles for which they stood. We may never see them on a postage stamps or streets and avenues named after them, but there was dignity in their lives and there is dignity in their deaths. Susie has commissioned a memorial of three tall granite stones that will include the names of those missing grave markers, and the town has pledged to help pay for it. Hush, somebody called my name. Hush. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Bailey Kitts in Bluefield, Virginia. Somebody calling my name. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Thanks to the late Dr. Jerry French for his help with research for this story. And to Glenn Kittle of WVVA Television, Bluefield. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Little Sparrow, Amethyst Kia, and Michael Howard. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at Ann Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.